the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Here's a hot-button question. If a woman has an abortion, is she guilty of murder? Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. This conversation has picked up major steam in recent days in evangelical circles. And it's a conversation that is being had, at least in many cases, among friends, even strong and historic friends, folks who get along and share a lot of theological agreement on a number of issues. But on the question of whether abortive mothers are guilty of some kind of crime, the evangelical movement, the conservative evangelical movement, currently finds itself in a great degree of disagreement. One friend of mine, a trusted interpreter of the Bible, a sound churchman, again a friend, Denny Burke, wrote this on his blog recently. The issue is whether there has been a true meeting of the minds in which the woman contracting the abortion has the same understanding of the act and same moral proximity to it as the abortionist. Burke writes, Does she know that abortion involves the killing of a human being? Was she coerced? Etc. To be sure, many women know exactly what they are doing when they get an abortion. But many others, Burke writes, have imbibed the lie that they are simply having an inhuman clump of cells removed. Both women have moral agency and culpability, but do they really have equal culpability, regardless of whether there has been a true meeting of the minds? Burke is implying between a woman abortionist and the woman having the child aborted. What specific public policy, he concludes the point, would take account of both kinds of situations? End quotation. As I say, Denny Burke is a deep thinker and a treasured friend of mine, and he raises real questions in his recent writings on his blog that you can find. He's not tackling uh, insubstantial issues, and he raises much for us to think through, and uh, I trust his guidance on many, many issues. But I do think that there is uh, an emerging disagreement uh, within the pro-life movement. And basically, it boils down to how we should understand the woman who comes to the abortionist to get an abortion. There are some who would identify themselves as pro-life who would say, that woman is not doing something that should be criminalized, basically at all. In many cases, folks on that side would emphasize that there is some kind of victimization happening. Now, Burke himself argues that this woman coming to get the abortion has some degree of moral agency and culpability, but argues that the abortionist has greater culpability. He goes on to uh, discuss this in his writings, uh, most recent post, and um, he makes very clear that the woman getting the abortion has some culpability. The um, 
article in question, as I get the uh, exact title here, from Denny's blog is entitled, Why Pro-Lifers Support Laws to Punish Abortionists But Not Mothers. This was written on May 13th, 2022, published on that day. I commend this piece to you. As is the case with Burke's writing, he offers much food for thought in this essay, Why Pro-Lifers Support Laws to Punish Abortionists But Not Mothers. Having said all that I have said thus far, I want to note that there is a real challenge, however, with this argument. The argument is this. Whatever anyone understands abortion to be, abortion has a moral meaning. Abortion is murder. Or as my friend Tom Askell put it in his own piece that I believe is being published soon, abortion is homicide. There's a discussion we can have about the precise technical term to use with regard to what abortion is. But I'm going to stick with the tried and true. Abortion is murder. There is nothing neutral about abortion. It does not matter, therefore, what someone understands the act to be. I agree with Burke, of course, that women are going to have abortions from a variety of circumstances. They're coming from a range of backgrounds and situations. Let that be said. But that's always true in every immoral act. People are always getting into fights from a range of backgrounds. People are always attacking one another from different understandings of the act. People today are going through gender transitions, let's say, or embracing homosexuality from a range of backgrounds and circumstances and experiences. We as Christians have great compassion for fellow sinners. We really need to. We want to understand as much as we can what is driving a given person to do the immoral act they are doing, the unbiblical event they are playing out. What brings them to this? As much as we can, we want to engage people and understand them and show compassion to them with regard to their background, uh, where that is merited. But none of that does anything to move the needle a millimeter from the moral reality of the act or event in question. The key with handling complex matters in the church and society and culture is not first to go to the human person's understanding or lack thereof of those acts or events, but to go to God's verdict on those acts or events. We know from the Old Testament itself that if a child in a mother's womb was mistakenly killed, that the judgment on that act was manslaughter. Manslaughter, of course, is different from outright murder. The basic difference would be this. With murder, you intend to kill. With manslaughter, you don't intend to kill, even though you do kill. You see this played out in Exodus 21, 22 to 25. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If the miscarried baby dies when two men are in a fight and the pregnant woman's child dies, even though those men were not at all trying to kill the child itself, the sentence is life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. This helps us understand several realities of Old Testament ethics. It is truly marvelous how textured the morality and ethic fabric of the Old Testament actually is. People often savage and disparage the Old Testament's ethics. But in reality, uh, this is uh, students who have splashed some paint on a canvas critiquing Picasso, critiquing the greatest artists there are. The Old Testament is a masterful ethical book. It does challenge our modern mores in many respects, yes. But here in Exodus 21, we understand that God accounts for a very interesting and somewhat complicated event. The key for us is to understand that it is a terrible thing to kill a child, to kill a baby in the womb, even if it was unintended. So if killing a baby in the womb is manslaughter, how much worse is it to intend for that baby to kill, to die, that is. Let me reframe that. If it is a terrible thing for two men to get in a fight, jostle a pregnant woman unintentionally, and then her baby die, and that baby dying mean that the person who caused it has committed manslaughter, how much worse is it to intend to kill a baby? The baby's death, the unborn child's mortality, does not occur because of an unintended consequence. No, as has happened over some 60 million times in America alone, babies have been aborted. Not through manslaughter, not through unintentional fighting that leads to uh, an unforeseen outcome. No, what has happened in the last 50 years, roughly, in American public life is that abortion has been made the sacred right of secular feminism. And many evil men, it must be said, have used this cultural context, this neo-pagan era, in order to not take responsibility for children. And many women have found themselves in bad circumstances and have aborted their baby. There are always going to be a range of circumstances and experiences and situational factors in play with abortion. Here's the good news, though. We don't need to get tangled up in knots as to how, if we criminalize abortion, if we criminalize abortion for the abortionist, for the woman aborting, and for the father involved somewhere in the mix, we don't need to twist ourselves into knots as to how justice is going to play out. And we, we do not need, and we should not fall prey to, pitting the different guilty parties in the abortive act against one another 
in, a, in the sense of jurisprudence, as if we can only hold one to account but cannot hold others to account. Let me be clear that there may be some complexity in the mix here. That is why you have a justice system. That is why you have ethicists, theologians, and other thinkers try to think through how a justice system should operate. That is why, ultimately, you desperately need a moral standard for life. That is why we should be so grateful that when it comes to complex matters, the Bible speaks clearly, and the Bible helps us understand that whatever a given person's understanding of abortion may be or of an unborn baby may be when it is in the womb, it matters not. Hear me. The only thing that ultimately matters is God's verdict. I recognize we are in cloudy and confused days. I know that matters have been complexified, in some cases seemingly beyond our capacity to handle them. And I know that fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who mean good and who want abortion overturned are are trying to do it as, as best they know how. And they are reckoning with complex circumstances. And and there is limited effort in the pro-life cause. I could go on. Nonetheless, having noted those realities, we are not left in the chaos of our culture on this issue or on any issue that Scripture treats. And Scripture treats all that is needed for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. I want you to hear then, at least from me, and there are others saying this as well, the key issue is not what people say it is. The key position we need to take is not what the focus groups say. The key argument before us is not what any sinner says to us. Our third reality here in this humble little podcast is that we need moral clarity on abortion. We need clarity more than anything else. You need clarity from Scripture as much as you need compassion. You must never let compassion and clarity be enemies. In the Bible, they work hand in glove, and the only way for true compassion to flow in any context, any situation, is when it is framed with nothing less than divine clarity, the clarity of Scripture. Or if the issue is not directly countenanced by Scripture, as much biblical clarity as we can squeeze out of the Scripture. This is because, on this third truth in this episode, Our position is not grounded in feelings. Our position is not grounded in experience. Our position is not grounded in circumstances. All those things are in play, and to a degree, all those things matter. But ultimately, what matters is just one thing and one thing alone. It's the truth. It's God's truth. As I phrased it earlier, God's verdict. We can sort out the legal matters before us. I repeat myself. This is what we have courts for. 
this is why we have a justice system. This is why we teach ethics. This is why we do theology. This is why we do public theology. We're able to handle all that is before us. What I mean practically, then, is if we do succeed in criminalizing abortion, as I pray we will, as I believe will massively aid the pro-life cause, call it whatever you want. I don't mean something very sharp and distinct there. I'm, I'm talking when I say pro-life cause about those who despise abortion, understand it to be murder, and, and out of love for neighbor and love for God above all, want to see Roe v. Wade struck down, but not just that, abortion excised from our society. We have the legal resources we need to handle these matters if abortion is criminalized. We are not left in a terrible place where maybe we can succeed in criminalizing abortion, but, but then we can't put things together after that. That's not how Christians approach other issues. That's not how we approach murder. That's not how we approach robbery. We know that there are going to be an array of background factors in any case. That's why we have the legal system we have. That legal system, which can handle other crimes, please hear me, can handle the crime of abortion. Abortion is a far clearer immorality than many other realities that courts currently handle. Abortion is the pinnacle evil of our day, alongside neo-pagan sexuality. Per Romans 1, 18 to 32, abortion is the pinnacle evil of our day. We are not talking about best practices with regard to recycling, framed as best we can out of Christian stewardship. We can have that conversation. That's a good conversation to have. That ain't this. We are talking about the savage destruction of human life, whether it is through actual tools and implements in an abortionist's hand, or whether that same horrific end is accomplished by a woman getting a prescription, as is very often the case today, and taking a pill that kills the baby. The exact manner of death matters not. There is an industry of death that creates abortion. We are all used to this now. There is a holocaust of the unborn. There are 60 million children who have died. We are not to a very significant extent, in a society when lots of people are confused about the nature of abortion. Yes, they have been told different things, but here again, the voice of conscience is stronger than the voice of culture. Romans 2, 14-16 speaks to this. Even if women tell us that they believe that the baby in their womb is just a clump of cells— there is an inborn witness of the conscience, part of what we call natural revelation, that helps such women know, even as the evil act is perpetrated, that it is wrong. Now, I'll admit there is a sliding scale of complexity here as to the searing of the conscience and related matters. 
But suffice it to say that humanity does not fundamentally operate from a knowledge problem, not just the knowledge of God, but the knowledge of sin. Because of Romans 1 and 2, humanity's fundamental problem is a suppression problem, the suppression of God's truth, not the lack of knowledge of God's truth. And we can apply that easily and directly to this issue. Most women are not at all confused about the nature of abortion. Most women know exactly what they are doing. They know it is wrong. In fact, it takes extreme circumstances for a woman not to know what is taking place in abortion. It takes extreme circumstances for that to be operating. So let's be clear on this. There can be women who are taken advantage of. There are instances of rape and incest and and, and such circumstances that will need to be taken into account by courts in different cases if abortion is criminalized. I am totally for that. We are not saying that all women are in exactly the same position with regard to abortion. So if a woman is brought into a clinic to have an abortion, and that woman is being forced to be there against her will, well, that absolutely factors into the mix. That woman is being wronged. If there's a circumstance where a woman willingly and knowingly seeks out an abortion, goes in to get that pill or whatever it may be, or have the procedure done, and there is also a man in the mix, in some way encouraging this or not taking responsibility, that too should absolutely be taken under account by courts, by our legal process. All parties involved in abortion, the abortionist, the father, the mother, all parties who have guilt should be brought under force of law. Someone will say, in response to what I have just said, But that's complex. That's going to take time to sort out. Yes, it is. I repeat myself ad infinitum here, apparently. That is why we have courts. That is why you go to trial. or That is why judges hear cases. It's because there is real complexity in our world, and we account for that. But all of that accounting is based in the morality, the moral objective truth that is grounded in God, that is found in natural revelation, and that is found in special revelation. Natural revelation is the revelation of God in the created order, whether in the mountains or the human mind, the human conscience, the body, on it goes. And special revelation is preeminently found in the Word of God in the Bible. Natural revelation and special revelation are not at odds. The two work together, and natural revelation is truly reinforced and interpreted authoritatively by special revelation. So this is tremendously good news. There's a lot on the table here. There's a lot to talk through. But I want you to be encouraged as a Christian Unlike unbelievers, you are not standing on sinking sand. Your position on abortion or any other issue is not grounded in your feelings, your experience, or your circumstances. It's not grounded in what anyone says. It's not grounded in what the polls tell you. Your 
moral stance is grounded in the truth of God. And this truth is solid rock. This is the truth you need. This is the truth human sinners spend their entire life looking for and never finding. Ultimately, when it comes to the Scripture, never submitting to, this is the truth that we all know to some serious degree, but suppress. But that does nothing to take away the truth. The truth remains. The truth endures. The truth is there. The truth is before us. And we as Christians put our feet on truth. We as Christians find the wall in the darkness, and the wall is God's truth, and we work from there. This leads us, fourthly, in this episode, to know this. There is a profound difference between the Winsomeness Project and apostolic Christianity. I talked about this in the previous episode. If you want some further thoughts on why evangelicals, even conservative evangelicals, have been drawn to what I call the Winsomeness Project. I will not rehearse that material here. Suffice it to say that there is a major difference between those who focus on being seen as winsome and those who read the Bible and read, let's say, the book of Acts and find in it the way to live. Bold, fearless, gospel-proclaiming, God-centered, neighbor-loving Christianity. What I've called here apostolic Christianity. I don't mean signs and wonders and, and special gifts by use of that phrase, apostolic Christianity. I mean a first-century pioneering gospel spirit, a spirit that has recurred throughout church history, a spirit that you find in the early church, a spirit that you find in the Lollards in the medieval period, a spirit that you find in the Reformation, that you find in the modern missions movement, that you find in Lloyd-Jones, that you find in Spurgeon, that you find in many others we could name. I'm talking about bold, fearless, God-centered, gospel-loving, neighbor-caring-for Christianity. But today, there's a serious alternative to apostolic Christianity. That alternative is often grouped with apostolic Christianity. It looks much the same. But in reality, as I began talking about in the previous episode, there's a serious difference between the two. The Winsomeness Project focuses on us. It spends a great deal of time, energy, and attention on us. What do I mean? It focuses so much of our attention on our tone. I want you to understand that already we're not on sound ground. This is not the solid rock I was talking about earlier. You and I are not supposed to spend a lot of time focusing on us. You and I just, frankly, are not supposed to think about ourselves that much, talk about ourselves that much, be concerned about how we're being perceived. More on that in a minute. That's not Christianity. That's fleshliness. That comes naturally, not just to some of us out there, that comes naturally to all of us. At some level, our entire Christian life is a battle between a God-centered Christianity and a self-centered, air quotes, Christianity. In the self-centered, air quotes, Christianity, yes, we're a Christian, and yes, we say all the right things and we go to the right services 
and we read some of the books and on it goes. But what we're really focused on, what has our energy and our attention, is not God and the things of God. It's us. The Winsomeness Project demands that we focus on us. Hey, Christian, we get grabbed by our collar. Your tone is not right. Focus on it. Always be thinking about your tone. Always be checking how people are responding to you. Never convey any sense of anything that would offend anyone else. That's really the cardinal sin, according to the Winsomeness Project. And then beyond that self-focus, which is so debilitating and so distracting from the glory of God, we're supposed to focus, secondly, on the opinions of unbelieving man. We're supposed to focus, that is, on how we're perceived. So the first focus is really us. It's our tone. And the second focus is really unbelieving man. Apostolic Christianity asks, how is God viewing how I am living? What does God think about what I'm saying, what I'm doing, how I'm engaging people? So you see, honestly, there's a serious way in which how you're saying what you're saying definitely does matter. It does. Apostolic Christianity says, how can I bear all the fruits of the Spirit? Galatians 5, 22 to 23. How can I exhibit gentleness, love, peace, and on the spiritual fruits go. How can I do all this for God's glory? We do very much concern ourselves then with our speech, our conduct, before all of that, our heart, our thinking, our desiring. Absolutely that glorifies God, that mentality. But all of that is God-centered. You understand? And all of that is profoundly different from saying, how is man perceiving me? Do unbelievers like what I'm saying? Do they receive me well? Yes, we're supposed to live at peace with all men. Yes, we're supposed to have a good reputation among unbelievers. The elder is. But that cannot mean that unbelievers like us and applaud us for our gospel courage and approve of us. Because if that is the case, if that's what it means to have a good reputation among unbelievers for the elder or any Christian, then the apostles and Jesus himself did a terrible job of living up to that standard. Because most of the apostles and Jesus himself were killed for the Christian faith. So clearly, the call to live at peace with all men and have a good reputation among non-Christians does not mean that they necessarily like you, that they applaud you, that they approve of you, that they say you're conservative but still really nice. No, it means that you do not bring scandal on the church. It means that your ethics and moral standards are not lower than theirs. It means that they see you leading a life that even they, in their fallen state, can acknowledge is, air quotes, a good life. They see those of us who have a teaching role in some form in the church, loving our wives, loving our kids, trying to do the right thing, 
helping the neighborhood. On and on it goes. That's what those biblical charges mean. They don't mean that you should structure your day and structure your thinking around how you're being perceived by unbelievers. There's another difference under this fourth truth for this episode between the Winsomeness Project and apostolic Christianity. Winsome Christians, air quotes, always feel the need to attack unwinsome believers. I discussed this in the prior episode, but it's a major blind spot of the Winsomeness Project. If I was to put it as succinctly as I can, in order to be winsome, you need to be mean. In order to purge the church, that is, of unwinsomeness, you need to attack the unwinsome. If you think I'm being hyperbolic, I encourage you to check out centrist evangelicals. I encourage you to see those who emphasize the need to be winsome. And I want you to track them and see if they really live up to their standards. I can tell you I've been on the receiving end of some brutal assaults of the so-called winsome side of the church. And it greatly angers, frustrates, and even enrages some on the winsome side that there are bold believers. And you would expect, if they are living up to their ideals, that that will then mean that the winsome project Christians will just tolerate the unwinsome. But that is not the case. There's a deep irony, I'm saying, in the winsomeness project. And it's the need to attack those self-righteously who don't live up to the standards of our winsome friends. There's an irony there. There's a problem there. There's an Achilles heel. Because really, you shouldn't be attacking other believers. That's not healthy. That's not good. You can map out their failings. You can differ from them. You can make your differences public, plain, and clear. I'm doing that here. But that's different than going on the offensive and assaulting those, even by words, who fail to live up to your elevated standards. The real problem, though, is not what I have been saying thus far. The real problem, to reiterate, is that apostolic Christianity focuses on God and his truth, and winsomeness leads us away from doing so. It may not try to. Those who fall prey to this branding exercise may think that they are flush in the center of the will of God, and they are doing tremendous good to the church, and they are saving the American church in the public square from the unvarnished Christians on the other side. But in reality, winsomeness loses sight of God and God's truth. It focuses us on us, and then secondly, on the opinions of others, especially elite unbelievers. We've seen this happen in one issue after another in the last two to five years. Here's winsomeness on wokeness. Here's what it focuses on. With regard to the evil ideology of wokeness that trains white people, so-called, to believe that they are inherently white supremacists, and thus encourages the so-called white American church to repent of the sin of white supremacy. 
Wokeness emphasizes, winsomeness emphasizes, that is, excuse me, I've got a lot of nesses going on with W's at the beginning. Winsomeness emphasizes that in the face of wokeness, we shouldn't attack wokeness. We shouldn't oppose it, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 6. We shouldn't destroy it as an ideology. Instead, we should be humble. We should be nice. We should listen. We should build bridges. If we're a white person, we really don't have much to say in this whole conversation over social justice, critical race theory, and wokeness. We're basically only there to sit, nod, as others talk, people of color, and then in certain strategic moments, shed some tears and confess our inborn white supremacy. That's really the winsome approach to this evil ideology that I call wokeness. This is part of why the church has suffered so much, because men of God have let wokeness into the church. They have done so, in many cases, not by openly advocating for the hard form, the hardest form there is, of race Marxism. No, it's the opposite. They have let wokeness into the church under the banner of winsomeness under the banner of watching tone, under the banner of tracking how outsiders around the church are perceiving it on the dreaded issue of racism. The Winsome Project has failed tragically and disastrously on the issue of wokeness. It has utterly failed to understand that wokeness is an evil, godless, anti-gospel ideology. If you want the receipts and the theological reasons why, derived from Scripture, as best I can present them, see my book, Christianity and Wokeness, with Salem Books. See also Vody Bauckham's excellent book, Fault Lines. Humility and niceness and listening are not what God calls Christians to in fighting evil ideology. We must always bear the fruit of the Spirit. We must always correct brothers in the faith in, in a spirit of graciousness, knowing that we ourselves could fall prey to the same, knowing that we ourselves stumble in many ways, Galatians 6.1, James 3.2. But we must also absolutely go to war against evil ideologies, Colossians 2.8, that would take us and the sheep captive. And there is a higher accounting for teachers. There is a stricter call. Modern evangelicalism has the teacher paradigm completely backwards. It's not that everybody who ever could teach should race their way into a teaching context. It's that not many of you should become teachers, Paul says, because teachers are judged with greater strictness. There is a humongous need, even today, in May 2022, for the Church, <clears throat> not just to reject critical race theory, not just to reject social justice, not just to reject wokeness. All of that must be done now, but also to reject winsomeness. I don't mean to reject the fruit of the Spirit. Do not misunderstand it. Do not misquote me. I mean man-centered winsomeness. 
it must be rejected. It must be rejected on other issues as well, not just wokeness, on women preachers. We've seen this play out in the last five to ten years, even among many professing complementarians. In the face of women clamoring for the role that is flatly not theirs, and not just the one role who gets to ascend the pulpit on Sunday morning, but in terms of women resisting and rebelling against and rejecting God's design for leadership in the home and the church in particular, and then to some overflowing degree in society, the church, including many so-called complementarians and even patriarchal reform types, has not risen up against the spirit of feminist and egalitarian rebellion and rebuked it and recognized that if it is allowed to fester in the church, it will, it will destroy professing Christian faith. No, instead, at least a good number of folks have focused on being known by what they are for, not by what they are against. And so numerous complementarians, thankfully not all, there's at least many who have responded strongly and clearly and graciously, but there has been this emphasis on finding everywhere a woman can be and making that be your complementarity, not focusing on what God's Word actually teaches and calls women to be and to do. This is done by well-meaning, God-loving people, who, when it comes time to answer the hard question of whether, for example, young women should be trained to be pastors or should be trained in pastoral settings, the pastor, instead of answering clearly, emphasizes all the many ways that women are gifted and women serve in the church. Women are gifted by God in many different ways, and women serve the church in many different ways. But in our age, we have to break with the winsome approach to this issue and other issues, and we have to speak the truth. We have to give the church the gift of clarity, not clarity from us, clarity from the Word of God. We have to not only train our young women in God's design and then apologize for God's design. We have to train young women and young men in the marvelous grace of God's design and help them understand that God's design is not only right, but is good. The Winsomeness Project does not emphasize the goodness of God's design. The Winsomeness Project knows that certainly many unbelievers receive God's design for men and women as not good at all when think about what God says on the sixth day of creation. He sees that it is very good. And the very goodness of the good creation includes his design, full stop, for men and women. Winsomeness apologizes for what God commends. Winsomeness backs away from what God loves. Winsomeness does this on marriage problems. It torches men, and it often soft-gloves women. 
This is not a call for one of the sexes to be targeted. Not in the least. Both men and women sin. Both husbands and wives need Christ. The Bible does not give us any sense that men are extra special sinners and women are the ones who tame, savage, extra specially sinful men. Both sexes help the other side. Men lend tremendous strength and help to women. Men lead women, protect women, provide for women in the design of God. Women offer tremendous help to men. Women are called the helper of men, of their husband, that is. Women nurture life. Women submit to their husband. Women create a home. We should not zero-sum this. Men are made by God in his perfect design to bless women. And women are made by God in his perfect design to bless men. But we need to be very clear when it comes to addressing issues in marriage and the home and the family, that we who preach and teach the Word of God are not out to get men and praise women to the skies as if they are only half-sinners. That is a lie. And in too many professing complementarian churches, the men end up burned to ash, and the women end up only praised. And that's not healthy. That's not right biblically. Winsomeness executes a similar move with what's called deconstruction, with basically doubting Christianity and doubting God and doubting the Word of God. The Winsome Project tells you, basically, that it's fine to doubt. It's okay to doubt God. Everybody doubts. Just keep doubting. But doubt in church. Doubt in the community. Doubt your way to faith. It's like you're justified by doubt. We all doubt. We all stumble. We all falter. This is true. That does nothing to enfranchise doubting. We all get mad in a wrong, vengeful, mean way. Just because we all do that naturally doesn't mean it's right. One bit. The Bible never teaches us that doubting God, doubting the Word of God, is good. Doubting God and doubting His Word is always sinful. Guess what? Just like being anxious and fearful, we're all going to have our moments— repeated, recurring moments where we sin against God. We must not take common experiences of sinners and demoralize them. We must instead approach them from the biblical grid, which is to say we should recognize that temptation is common to man. We should not be overly discouraged by our sin. We should not be overly expectant that we or any other sinner is going to be perfect. No one is. We must. We must repent of that expectation. And then we must freely and gladly confess our sin to God and man and repent of it. The solution to sin, when you find it, is not to do what, tragically, a good number of conservative evangelicals do with deconstruction and say, that's great. That's great. Read all your secular or your liberal Christian authors and work it all out. That's fine. You're just on your faith journey. And then the practical approach to that in our own lives is to say, oh, that's fine. You're just broken and messed up. The solution to that 
is not to arm up against any sin such that any time anyone shows any sign of fallenness, they have lost their faith forever. No, it is to confess that and to repent of it, to lead a life of repentance unto God. Welcome to the Christian life. It's not okay to doubt. It's not okay to distrust God. But it is always right to know our fallenness and embrace that, and even in a, in a rightly understood way, embrace that. I'm going to get things wrong every day I live. I'm going to have to confess sin and repent of it every day I live. My spouse is going to get things wrong and have to confess and repent every day he or she lives. My kids are going to get things wrong and have to confess and repent, or at least be trained to do so, every day they live. Christian, do not fall prey either to wrong, winsome approaches to doubt and deconstruction or to a creeping legalism in which you're not really a sinner and the people around you really can get to a kind of state of sinless perfection. You can't and they can't. That is a lie. And you need to guard against it. Winsomeness executes the same move with political issues. It frames discipleship issues as conscience issues. What do I mean? It frames moral and ethical matters as if they are effectively a jump ball, and Christians can just agree to disagree over them. And that is absolutely wrong. It is true that we will differ over some of the ways to fight sin in our world. Yes, that's true. And so there is an element of conscience in terms of how we apply the moral truth of God's Word, of God's revelation. But fundamentally, we must take scrupulous care not to take clarity in the Word of God and render it man-centered complexity. If there is God-centered clarity, let it be God-centered clarity. Frequently, forms of application will not be muddled. Frequently, forms of application will be clear. Will Christians need to disagree in charity on numerous gray areas of life? Yes, we will. Yes, we do. We want to be careful here. We are not God. That's part of the whole point here. However, we must not frame discipleship issues as conscience issues, and we must not fall prey to this hideous teaching so common today that the church is neither left nor right, that it's a good thing for us not to, to have a witness in the public square in any political sense, and that it's actually good for us to lose over and over again in a public sense. These realities are not true. These realities, on many counts, I'll just mention one, are unbiblical. Think of the example of John the Baptist in Matthew 14, 1 through 12, who puts his entire ministry and even his very head on the line over the sexual sin of a political leader. John the Baptist calls out sinful Herod for his adultery, and as a result, not for preaching the gospel of Christ in an early form, but for his public theology, for his ethical witness, John the Baptist is beheaded. Do not make the common error. Do not provide the commonly wrong teaching that the church has nothing to say politically, that we are just supposed to be seen in terms of politics as nice, humble, listening to everybody, never coming down on an issue, never taking a stand, because all we're really about 
is being nice to people and loving them in the name of Jesus. It is gloriously true (laughs) that we are trying to love everyone we can and that we are trying, by the grace of God, to win them to faith in the name of Jesus Christ. That is the most glorious way we can try to love our neighbor in this fallen order. So we are all in on love, and we are all a work in progress in terms of loving our neighbor. But we must never make the mistake of thinking that we can pit loving our neighbor against being a public witness. One of the best ways to love our neighbor is to be a public witness, is to tell the truth. It's to speak up for the unborn. It's to try to prevent society from embracing gender transition surgeries and what's called gender care of a transgender-affirming sort. Our culture's understanding of love as affirmation is no love at all. So never pit true Christian love against sound Christian witness. Don't do it. The Winsomeness Project makes this error over and over again. And sadly, it does so intentionally in at least a good number of cases. Don't fall prey to this. The Church's public theology is overwhelmingly on the side of what is called conservative. Be a meaningful voice and witness in the public square as a Christian and never think that you standing for life or standing against neo-pagan transgender agendas, for example, is you failing to be loving. You are being loving by standing against evil. You are being loving by standing for the truth. If you ever doubt that, and you may well doubt that, think back to Matthew 14, 1 through 12, and beheaded John the Baptist and what he teaches you. In all these senses, and I need to rapidly wind my way to a conclusion here, we see that winsomeness uses identity politics on all these issues. Winsomeness, or the Winsomeness Project more broadly, is really an adaptation of identity politics. You could say it this way. For practitioners of the Winsomeness Project, evangelicals, professing evangelicals, that is, Identity politics are a useful analytical tool. Identity politics are not evil, bad, seeing people not according to their God-given identity, but according to different traits of their identity, self-chosen. No, identity politics is good. And practitioners of the Winsomeness Project use identity politics for Christian witness and proclamation. So, Winsomeness voices on wokeness will say only people of color can speak to this issue because people of color are being engaged. On women preachers, Winsomeness Project practitioners will say, well, we've got to raise up women to answer the feminists, to answer the egalitarians, because they won't listen to men, because men's voices are discredited. So we've got to have women answer women's issues. On deconstruction, Winsomeness Project practitioners will say, well, we've got to have people who have wrestled their way through doubt, because anybody who's never had an authentic wrestling with doubt can't speak to this issue. On tough political issues, Winsomeness Project folks say, well, we've got to find centrist voices who can help the church be neither left nor right, 
because those who would take a stand on any number of biblical issues, they're compromised. Winsomeness falls prey to and uses identity politics. Do you know the solution in a general sense to a lot of what ails us? There's, there's a variety of things to adopt in the light of this compromise cult. Fundamentally, though, what we need are men of God. We need strong men of God to preach and teach and proclaim the Word of God and stand up and be fearless in the church and in the public square, on the mission field and everywhere we can go. We need strong men of God to model apostolic Christianity. You might think, well, Strand, that's a little man-centered, isn't it? Is it? Was not Jesus the one who gathered 12 men to himself and then turned them loose, as the book of Acts records? Is that not the foundation of every sound, gospel-preaching, word-exalting local church? A body of elders? Sound pastors? We desperately need men who will stand up and who will speak and who will tell the truth. They won't be the only ones who speak. They will lead the church's witness. They will model it. Others will join them. Others will have opportunity to offer testimony. That's good. Others will have the chance in in different venues and environments to debate and do apologetics and evangelism and stand for the faith, and on it goes. That's all good. At least much of it is good in theory. We're thankful for that. We don't only mean that elders of the church speak and the rest of the church never says anything. No. We mean that we need godly men, strong men, fearless men, Christ-captivated men, born-again men, to model all of this. We don't need identity politics. If there's a challenge with sexual ethics, a given sin in your community, you don't need somebody who has battled that sin and overcome it to respond faithfully and effectively to it. You have some freedom in terms of a testimony, but what you most need is a team of elders who will preach and teach the truth and equip the church to then proclaim the truth everywhere the church can. You don't need identity politics. You need God's truth. You need strong men. You need men, in conclusion, who live out the spirit of Romans 1, 16 to 17. You need men who are not ashamed. As we wrap up, let's hear this word afresh in light of this entire discussion, in light of how the church engages abortion, in light of, as I have argued for here, the desperate need to make moral lines very clear on abortion, in light of the need to criminalize abortion for abortionist, for participating father, for participating mother, letting the law, the court, judges handle the different complexities and dimensions of these cases as they will need to do. But in all of this, fundamentally, we need fearlessness. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. 
as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We, the church, do not live by fear. We live by faith. We, the church, fight shame when we feel it, as we all will, as we all do. We, the church, remember this over and over again with Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.